This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's up, everyone? Today on FIFA America, we need to talk about how in the last World Cup qualifying window, Luca De La Torre had a breakout game against Honduras, but he was potentially not going to be called into the team if Busio hadn't tested positive for COVID. So today I brought in someone that tracks a vast amount of players abroad so we can really focus on those players that can make an impact for the national team, but aren't necessarily a part of the roster right now. Who are those talents that could play a key role sooner rather than later for the U.S. Men's National Team? So Justin Moran, thank you so much for joining the channel. Thanks, Jake, for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So just for the people that haven't seen your Twitter, haven't seen you on other channels, you just introduce like how you've really got deep into following the player pool for the U.S. Men's National Team. Yeah, I've been a big U.S. fan since the 2014 World Cup. But when we failed to make the 2018 World Cup, you know, the Cuba disaster with Trinidad and Tobago, that really lit a fire under me to learn more about this next generation. Christian Pulisic had already arrived on the scene and done very cool things. We were starting to hear rumblings about Weston McKinney at Schalke and Jonathan Gonzalez at Monterey. So I wanted to learn more about these guys and I wanted to know about them before they emerged to have a picture of who could be the next guys to step up. It seemed like we were on the brink of something special, even with just Pulisic alone. So that got me to start with looking at stuff in FIFA and then getting into Transfermarkt and then looking at youth national teams and what's happening there. And there are a lot of people who have better expertise than I do at the really young levels. And there's so much content available now for guys who are playing overseas with their club teams and young players in MLS as well and USL. So it's been fun to be able to use a lot of those resources and especially the video to just see a player's skill set and to see where they could fit in the national team or what they could provide situationally, all of those things. Yeah, definitely. And shout out to Sanjeev, who runs the USMNT videos channel. We're going to be using a lot of that footage throughout the video to just show you guys visually what is actually happening. What are we seeing from the players? Um, but it's been a long time coming. Been uh, trying to get you on the channel for a while, so I'm glad it's worked out. So I just want to start here without really talking about any players first, but just your view of how Greg has been able to integrate talent into the national team and like how have you felt he's done in terms of getting new players into the team and ready to play for the national team? This might be the one most important area where I judge Greg because I'm so focused on the player pool and the national team manager doesn't just manage the team itself, the players he chooses to be part of it. He is also managing the player pool in that players can end up playing for other nations if they aren't called in or players' confidence can rise and fall due to his decisions. I think of Ricardo Pepe and his getting minutes or not getting minutes, things like that. So that idea of how are you managing the pool and what's your process for calling up players, playing them, including them on rosters. So he has a great responsibility there as far as I'm concerned with the player pool. And there seems to be a high bar for entry right now. So when a player emerges at a Gio Reyna level or at a Weston McKinney level, at Serginho Dust level, 
they, those players are included in the national team pretty quickly, and they sometimes have to fight for their roles a little longer than I would expect or assume based on what they're doing at club level. But once you've hit that level where you're a top player in a top league or Champions League, he seems to do a good job of integrating those players and recognizing, hey, this is someone who would really improve the team. But it seems that if you don't reach that bar, if you aren't a top player in a top league or top player in Champions League, that you can easily be either ignored or be a fringe player who might make a camp but not play at all, even though the skill set that you offer might be better than some of the other options. So again, not talking about any specific names here, but just that idea of what does it take to break through? What does it take to get a call up? And there's a whole discussion about call-ups being earned, roster spots being earned, but part of it too is to be able to evaluate players and to see what they can do versus CONCACAF opposition. Because if someone's playing in the Bundesliga or La Liga, the opponents they're facing are probably stronger than a lot of the opponents that we face in CONCACAF. This is actually something that's topical for me because I'm trying to build a video where I'm evaluating our six best strikers and trying to go through the data and their stats and everything. They've played different opponents. Like there's no one source of truth for how well someone has played because the competition is different. One piece that you touched on for Greg is that when you get to the Geo Reina level, it's easy to call your name in. It's easy to get into the team. But one thing that I've kind of seen and I'll, I'll attach a name to it, but it's like someone like John Brooks, who we might talk about later, has seemingly been playing at a level that is worthy of the national team. And then compare that with someone like Mark McKenzie, who at the same time that they're trying to get into the team, maybe isn't seeing the field or is playing for an objectively worse team talent-wise. How do you feel about that in terms of like Greg looking at players versus their competition and then thinking about bringing them into the team versus others that are maybe more like team people, people that are, you know, leaders, I guess, in the locker room, you could say. I think Greg places an extremely high value on continuity and on time spent in camp with him, learning the system, learning the tactics that he wants to use. And so I think Greg is very slow to let go of players once he has invested a lot of time with them. And I don't think that's necessarily a problem or necessarily a bad thing, depending on how you weight those things and how you're able to integrate new players. But I do think that that has been a problem for Greg, that he's overvalued players who've spent significant time in camp and that instead of being able to move on or not even move on, because for a player to be left off one roster doesn't mean that they're somehow gone from the team and they can never be brought back. But rather than testing and trying different options and saying, okay, we're having open competition for these spots. So this player will be in this camp. We'll see how he can do the next camp. He won't be there. We'll have a different face and whoever shows us more will continue with the team. So rather than that dynamic, Greg seems to want his players to feel comfortable and trusted. And there can be a positive benefit to that, right? The team seems to have a pretty solid culture and the guys seem to have fun together when the results are good. Um, We see a little bit more stress and tension when that's not the case. But I think that Greg's focus and his values on the team culture and on those dynamics can limit the team in terms of actual skill set. So let's talk about that continuity for a second. So 
We don't expect much to change in the March window because Greg does value the continuity of the team and bringing in what I would expect from a 23-player roster is that 18 to 20 of the same players that were in the last roster are going to be in the March window. So in that respect, if we do qualify for the World Cup, we have seven or eight months to integrate new talent into the team that we need them to be ready for the World Cup. How do you see that best happening over the next year going into a Winter World Cup? Well, the quick answer is to have as many camps and games as possible (laughs) to be able to have the most opportunities to see new players. It's an interesting conundrum because the focus of this year can't just be on evaluating the pool. It needs to be focused on building chemistry with our best players and building different tactical plans going into the World Cup so that our best players are the most prepared possible to actually go into the tournament and that we have the most weapons or tools at our array where we can say, oh, this isn't working. We're going to switch to this other tactical plan. We're going to change our shape. So it's tricky to balance those things while also bringing in new players. Nations League this summer could be a good opportunity to do that. So there will be four match days, I believe, in June, but they'll be this summer. And it will be interesting to see where our best players are at in terms of load management. They'll have been playing a lot with their clubs for the most part. They'll have been coming through this kind of grueling World Cup qualifying campaign. But some of them probably will want to be part of that. I doubt that we get the full complement. But I think that that is something that I have circled where if there are players who are on the fringe who have been in the team and players in the fringe who haven't been in the team, that's the time to try the outsiders. Yeah. So let's talk about them then. Probably everyone is just like, who are these people that we need to know about? And some of them are going to be familiar names. Some of them are hopefully people that we we haven't necessarily had on the radar, but we should. So I'm just going to leave this one to you. Is like, who who is that player that we need to talk about that is on the fringes right now and could have an immediate impact for the national team? There are a lot of players that fit that criteria or at least could have some impact on the national team. And so I wanted to try to share them in the order that I think they could have an impact. So who could have the most impact right now? And the first player that comes to mind for that is John Brooks. He's elegant with the ball at his feet. He's comfortable under pressure and can step past the first attacker. He's an elite progressive passer when compared to other center backs in top five European leagues. He's extremely good in the air defensively. He went through a dip in form this fall with Wolfsburg, but he's back to his usual level. He actually made the Bundesliga team of the week this past week. Brooks can be a liability when isolated versus pacey or skillful opponents, but both in the Bundesliga and even in Champions League, coaches are able to use him while minimizing his weaknesses And his progressive passing is a difference maker, even at that Champions League level. That's been a real point of need for the U.S. team, a player who can pick locks and ask questions of the defense. So he's a player who could step back in and immediately make a strong impact. One of the biggest questions then for fans would be, what does he have to do to get back into the team? Because he has been with the team before. He even said, I think, on an interview about a year ago, that he was looking to use this year to become a leader and potentially captain the team going into the World Cup. So he, he's actually one of the only other players, aside from DeAndre Yedlin, who have been in a World Cup and a, he's scored in one as well. What does he need to do to get back into this team? That's an open question, and it's up to Greg. None of us can truly know. 
there have been rumors or suspicions that there's some kind of attitude problem or that there's a chemistry problem with Brooks in the locker room. And we don't have anything really to go off of other than a couple of clips of him raising his hands and shrugging during the Canada match early on in qualifying. So it's possible that Greg sees Brooks as a player who won't be content as the third or fourth option at center back. And that's possible that, but I don't see him having such a detrimental effect to the team that he couldn't handle coming in. And he is such a talented player. He should be starting at least one game in two to three game windows. So I think the gap between where Greg sees Brooks and the talent level and the skill set that Brooks can actually offer to this team is creating a really, a really disappointing dynamic. And then Greg's value for cohesion, chemistry, continuity, then we end up with Mark McKenzie, who is not a bad player, and I'm not looking to denigrate McKenzie, but what he offers the team today is significantly less. Yeah, it's kind of like as soon as a player makes a roster or steps onto the field wearing a jersey, they have our full support as fans, but we can also look to the coach for who he has selected and putting us in the best position to get a result within those windows. I I wanted to ask you because you follow the player pool and you, you kind of see the differences between these players. What is the difference when, you know, 95% of the fan base can look at a player and say that person is worthy of making this team, making the national team. And then you have Greg who isn't calling that player in. Like, what is the actual difference there that we're, we're not seeing or not hearing? I'd like to say that it's as simple as that Greg is not a good evaluator of talent, but I don't think it's quite that simple. I think that Greg places an extremely high value on what he sees from players in person in camp and what they've done on the field for the U.S. Um, I think even with that caveat, he seems to focus on only the good. So a guy like a Sebastian Legette, Greg has seen him in person quite a bit in so many camps over his years as coach, but maybe Legette was showing something different in camp than what he was on the field for the U.S. in 2021. In mentioning Luca De La Torre, Greg talked about Luca not being as good in transition, and that's actually one of Luca's strengths. And so moments like that can be confusing or frustrating for fans. I think the one other example that springs to mind is Joe Scally. There were reports that Joe Scally did not impress Greg when he was in camp with the U.S., and that would be an example of Greg strongly waiting a player's performance in camp, as opposed to saying he's looking good against Bayern Munich, he's looking good against Leverkusen, he's going to do well at this level. Yeah, I guess you hit at the core of that, right? Because it's it's kind of like we see a Brooks Lennon who is in camp getting time with Greg and gets called in uh, initially to the roster he was injured and, and sent back versus Joe Scali, who is playing and winning games against Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga. Those are two very different aspects and and like values that fans would potentially put on players but because Brooks Lennon is called in versus Joe Scali that that is like an objective piece that someone can look at and and ask why or like what that difference is so it's really interesting to hear from your perspective because you you track all these players so closely um would it be fair to say then that Mark McKenzie for you would be the player that drops off in in favor of John Brooks I think he would be the first one that drops off. Yeah, I think that Chris Richards and I think Chris Richards is clearly on the roster. If healthy, we don't know what his status will be. I think Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman are also going to be there at this point, And I have no problem with either of them. Um, 
they each have had bad moments or um, Zimmerman has his limitations on the ball. We've seen in some of our away matches, but both can be used really well in the right circumstance. So I think those three are going to be in the picture and should be. So that leaves Brooks and then I think probably McKenzie steps out and there could be competition if Greg wants to add another center back after that. Yeah. Just based on depth, what what area of this, the 23 for the U.S. going into this year is the weakest depth for you? I think left back is probably the easy answer. Um, I mean, we only brought one <laughs> to the yeah. last qualifying window. Yeah, and I see players I'm excited about at positions all over the field. Even with left back, we can talk about Jonathan Gomez, Kevin Paredes. Joe Scali has played, I think, more on the left than he has on the right this year, despite being a natural right back, and he's performed well there. So we do have talented options, and that's what's so exciting about being a U.S. fan right now is that even in the areas that are considered weaknesses where our depth isn't strong, we do still have players who really can do good things and put in strong performances if the tactical plan is good and if they're used in the right way. Yeah, so let's talk about them for a second then, that kind of left left back depth. You mentioned Joe Scali and Jonathan Gomez as players that can potentially fill that gap in need for us. I know both players are, are on your list. Maybe let's touch on... Joe Scally first, just because he's playing at a higher level right now than than Gomez. But Gomez isn't very far behind and got his first start for the second team for Real Sociedad in the past weekend. So what what do you see from Joe Scally that makes him valuable for the national team? Scally plays the game at an intense speed. He's extremely physical and aggressive on both sides of the ball. He's solid defending 1v1 against Bundesliga wingers. He doesn't hesitate to put in strong tackles. Even when he's defending, he looks like the aggressor, if that makes sense. He's always looking to drive the ball forward into the attack, including passing through the lines. He's played sparingly since Christmas, only about 30 minutes in three different matches. That's due to COVID and due to Gladbach's first choice fullbacks becoming healthy again. So a lot of his opportunities came in the fall because those players were unavailable. But his skill set is one that unquestionably translates to CONCACAF opponents, especially that aggressiveness and the drive forward. He's always looking to push the ball forward and connect passes to the forward line. In my mind, when you describe that type of player, it doesn't necessarily align with who Anthony Robinson is or Serginho Dest. Like they're more technical attacking wingbacks, I would almost call them, where Joe Scali is more of like a he wants to get forward, but he's he's very intense in his defending. Do you do you see that as a reason why he might not be getting called in, or like what do you think his his weaknesses are in terms of not being able to to get into this team? That's a hard question because he is such a well rounded player. It could be like you said that Greg places so much emphasis on the fullbacks being forward and being part of the attack that he doesn't see Scali translating in that position. But Scali doesn't lack technique. He is clean on the ball. He is comfortable under pressure. He can whip in a nice cross. He's delivered some good balls this year that have led to goals for Gladbach. So it could be that Greg just says, he's more of a stay-at-home fullback, and I'm looking for these players who are almost more like wingers coming from behind. But even then, I don't see a problem with Scali being there. Yeah, Scali has a goal to his name as well in the Bundesliga this season, uh, I might add. All right, so moving on then to the other left back who is currently deciding between Mexico and the U.S., Jonathan Gomez. 
a lot of people are really excited about him as a prospect and what his ceiling is. Why is that? But he's been in the USL, so maybe the the more casual fans haven't been able to see what his game is really about. So talk to us about why people are so excited and why you yourself are putting him on this list. Yeah, he's 18 years old, but Jonathan Gomez is the aspirational left back. He's the left back that you hope for who could prototypically fit into your system, both attacking and defending. He's equally comfortable doing both, but he loves to join the attack. He's always looking to overlap and make aggressive runs. He's a technical player. He can dribble past opponents. He often looks to get to the end line and then cut inside and square the ball back for a tap-in. He got a number of assists that way in USL this past season. He can improve his defensive positioning and his tactical awareness, but he already offers something special relative to our other options at left back. As you said, he is a Mexico dual national. He's been in camp with both teams. And the moment that he steps on the field in La Liga, it will be an all-out recruiting battle for, for his services. Yeah. Do you know what the left back situation looks like for Mexico? And in my mind, one of the easiest recruiting techniques would be to say, if you join us, you'll be with us for the World Cup. So if if both teams are kind of aiming towards that and could potentially offer Gomez that position, is there kind of a an easy answer for Jonathan Gomez to say, I would get more playing time or I would be higher up the depth chart on this team? I want to say that his chances would be better with Mexico. Um, I'm not an expert on their player pool, but I know that in general, most of their top players are in their prime 27, 28 years old. And they are still trying to find a lot of the next generation who's going to fill in. So there are a couple of younger options in Liga MX who have been in camp and who have played for Mexico in the World Cup qualifiers so far. But the opportunity is there as well with the U.S. You know, after Anthony Robinson, we don't have a clear player who solidified himself within our team. I think the extra competition comes in because there are guys like Joe Scali and Kevin Paredes who could put themselves in that position very quickly. There's not someone like that necessarily on the L3 side. Yeah. And before we move to another player, I just want to ask you, after watching Jonathan Gomez, how close realistically is he to stepping on the field for the the La Liga team instead of the B team at Real Sociedad? I think it could happen in the next few months. I would honestly be surprised if he doesn't make his La Liga debut before the end of this club season. I was reading an article about Real Sociedad's academy system and the way that they bring players through. And it seems like a deliberate system where there are boxes to check at each level. And that's true at almost every club in the world, right? You don't just get vaulted right into the starting 11. But I think that with a handful of strong performances with the reserves, they'll be looking for him to, uh, to come up to the first team. The only real question I have is they do have several um, first choice left backs on their uh, several left backs on their first team roster. And I wonder if they may want him with the B side to keep them from being relegated. They are next to bottom in La Liga two and having a reserve team in the second tier is really amazing. They are the only club in Spain that has done it. It looks likely that they will go down this year, but I wonder if they might try to try to keep him there so that they can maintain the, yeah. the backups there. Some game theory happening with their, their second team there. Okay, so 
Another player that could potentially play left back, also seen him on the wing in a more attacking presence, Kevin Paredes, who is now with Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga, has made the bench several times already, but hasn't made his debut for the team. Talk to us about this player that came from DC United. Yeah, he came through DC's academy as a winger with strong dribbling skills. He loves to go by players with the ball at his feet and to create magic on the dribble. He converted to a wing back in MLS and was an absolute revelation. I was just looking on FB Ref today, and you can see the comparisons to players statistically within their league or within their area. And most of these players' statistical comparisons are in top leagues. But since Paredes is in MLS, he's in the 80th, 85th, 90th percentile in so many different statistical categories, whether it's progressive carries, um, the defensive stats, goals and assists for a wingback or for a defender. He's the ideal attacking fullback. Um, he was linked to both Manchester City and to Salzburg before moving to Wolfsburg. And when that first news broke um, about Manchester City, I remember thinking that was strange. But the more video I've seen of Paredes, he is a truly special player. He's incredibly difficult to contain. He tackles well. His defensive positioning and his awareness are his areas to grow. And that's normal for these young players. Having played only one season, two seasons, they're going to grow in those areas. Yeah, it's funny that you say Man City and Salzburg because another fullback from MLS that I can think about who has gone through that development, and I see the jersey behind you for uh, Leipzig is Angelino, who was with NYCFC, was bought by Manchester City, was loaned to Red Bull Leipzig, and then through his loan was purchased. So for someone that's more of an attacking fullback that likes to run past players, getting crosses, like that actually tracks really closely with with that profile. Um, so I'm not I'm not too surprised. More more of just like, and maybe you can speak to this as well. Just how many players are now coming through? our academy system, are moving abroad very early in their careers. And for people, even Joe Scali is an example, someone that when he moved to his Bundesliga team, everyone was kind of like, what? He's never played more than like 90 minutes for an MLS team. What do they see in this kid? And a year later, he's like a locked-in starter now with COVID and Christmas. All, all of that's a little bit different. But there's just so many players now coming from every single team, every single academy system, where maybe we're not the best judges of talent because these professional teams are are paying a lot of money to get our teenagers. Yeah, I do have questions for some MLS managers because it's a club-by-club club distinction about how teams recognize their academy players and how they integrate them. And it seems to be going really well in places like Dallas and Philadelphia. And then there are several clubs I could name, Portland, Houston, that are really struggling. I think there is slow progress on almost all fronts within MLS. Um, one question people often ask is whether we're currently experiencing a golden generation of talent or whether this is just the tip of a wave that's coming and it will just continue. And I don't know how to answer that question because while there are so many things that are improving, especially the pathway to Europe, I think MLS selling so many young players to Europe and scouts and teams beginning to look here more frequently is a huge development. There have also been a lot of problems in the academy system, mostly coming from COVID and shutdowns and closures. The youth national team program also has some holes that it needs to fill, both in terms of coaching and in terms of camps at different age groups. 
one area where Mexico outstrips us by far is calling up multiple age groups. So right now we have a U23 team that typically is only active close to major tournaments, and then U20, U17, U15. We're typically seeing Mexico have teams for every single birth year in between. So that's five, six, seven additional teams where they're getting those players integrated, they're making those players feel wanted and creating those relationships and being able to have a better um, finger on the pulse of their player pool. So there are definitely lots of positive developments. There's reason for concern as well. Yeah, I remember listening to the Scuff podcast when they had one of those experts on the true like academy, like under 14 and below, just talking through what COVID has done to completely destroy some of the foundational structures within the kind of like second layer academies, I would say, not MLS academies, but really the club teams that are in certain areas that are trying to develop young talent that they've just been stripped of their leagues. They haven't played games in a year. These players that were slated to be the best players born in 05 or 06 haven't played a, a competitive game in a year and a half. Like those are really scary things when you start to think about how far we've come. And then if we didn't, you know, get back on track right away. And I don't know where we are now. You know, that was six months ago that I listened to the Scuff podcast about it. We can't only depend on the MLS academies bringing us the the next generation of talent. Yeah, there was kind of a mad scramble because some academies actually closed down. Others didn't have competitive games or certain age groups weren't active. And so depending on what a player was, what age they were, what team they were with, it might make sense for them to travel quite a bit. And those are the problems that we're still trying to get past. You know, we've all heard the stories of Clint Dempsey's family driving him hours just to get him to practice and how how that paid off for the USMNT. But in some ways, we're still there in terms of sometimes it makes the most sense for a 15 or 16 year old kid to be going to a club that's in a different state or going somewhere that's far away from his home just so that he can have a decent opportunity to play. And that's not how it should be. I still remember even a more recent example, Tyler Adams was driving two hours back and forth each way to the Red Bull Academy to play his games and look, look what type of player we, we have because of that dedication from his family and from him. And that's not the same story everywhere else in the country. Okay, so we've talked about the depth at left back and the three players potentially that could fill that gap. Are there any other players that we really need to have on our radar that aren't necessarily a part of this national team just yet? The one other name I definitely want to highlight is Alex Mendez. He's a 21-year-old central midfielder for Vizela in Portugal's first year. Mendez has been a 10, and for most of his career, he's been seen as a luxury player, even though his left foot is incredibly special but his defense and even his off-ball movement have lacked. But he's converted to be more of a true eight with Vizela, and he's grown in terms of his defense and even in his off-ball movement. He actually wants to get stuck in now. Um, I think that, like several of the others, his defensive positioning and his sense of danger and recognition still needs to improve. He, I think, is a step down from other U.S. options when it comes to the defensive side. I think even players like Luca De La Torre offer quite a bit defensively and Mendez is still growing, but he has a specific ability to pick locks and to find special passes to unlock the defense. And again, this is an area the U.S. really struggles. So Mendez isn't a player who should be coming in today and looking to start games in the March window. However, I would love to see him on the squad for the March window 
and an option off the bench because there are situations we get into where there just needs to be that special moment or a special ball that can send a guy like Tim Weah in behind the defense to get a goal. And Mendez is a player who can do that really well. He also is eligible for Mexico. I still remember waking up for the U-17 World Cup. I think it was in um, Korea or Japan. And that team, like Alex Mendez, and then the U-20 World Cup as well, with Gio Reyna captaining and Mendez's left foot was like, we, d- we don't have any specialists in terms of like, I guess Kellen Acosta is the closest you can get on the national team to a dead ball specialist. But Alex Mendez isn't just, from what I've seen, at least a dead ball specialist. He can he can hit those balls from free play. He can hit those balls when he's dribbling or when he's beating an opponent. So it's nice to hear. I haven't watched a ton of him in the Portuguese league, but the fact that he's kind of converting himself from a 10 to an 8 if you can say one thing about the way that we're playing as a national team where we don't necessarily use a 10, well, it's kind of followed the the meta of world football where not many teams play with a 10 anymore. And if you want to be a creative midfielder, you kind of have to have those defensive responsibilities. We've seen it with Gianluca Busio. I think his move to the Italian Serie A has done wonders for him. Just you talked about sensing danger. I think in his second or third game, he lost the ball that led to a goal. And that, to me, is just the best learning experience possible for someone that played as a 10 but now has eight or six responsibilities. Luca De La Torre as well, who had you know been in an academy as a winger but is now an eight, and just defining his re- responsibilities as a defender. So do you think that's really where Mendez needs to pick it up to really see the light for the national team? Or do you think his left foot and him as a, a lock-picking specialist is so good that he might have a space on this team already? Well, it depends on how large of a roster we're looking at and how many midfielders Greg wants to bring and who's healthy and available. Because I don't think that Mendez has a place on the roster above players like McKenney, Reyna, Musa, Luca De La Torre, or even Busio. I think the gap between Busio and Mendez is small, and that Mendez's ability, like I said, to open locks and to provide that special ball and to be incisive, that ability might almost be worth the trade-off. Um, they're very similar players, he and Busio. Um, but again, we've talked about Greg's speed of integrating new players, so I don't <laughs> expect it. Um, but I think that's another reason why I tend to love large rosters. Again, as a player pool guy, I, I want to see players included and I want to see lots of different ways to solve problems. I think we have adapted to a new way of seeing midfielders through Musa and McKenney and Adams. Their athleticism and their range and their defensive cover are next level, but there's nothing wrong with the players like Busio and Mendez who are traditional midfielders in that they see the field, they check their shoulder, and they solve problems with the ball at their feet. One of my favorite Mendez clips was a, a throw-in that came to him and there were defenders coming in on three sides and he just popped the ball up in the air over all of them to find a teammate who was open in the center circle. Those types of moments we don't see often with the U.S. team. Yeah, and I feel like I'm seeing it more and more with young technical players that are coming out of, of the U.S. So, okay, one last shot at someone. I'm going to give you a bonus round. <laughs> who, who is that next player down? Um, that you want to highlight that we should like 
maybe let's think about it this way. Maybe they're not necessarily in the national team picture just yet, but they have a ceiling or they have a, a potential to really make a difference in the future for the national team. I think the other guy that comes to mind is Eric Palmer Brown. Like you said, he might not be in the squad soon and he might not even be for this cycle, but he has stepped into a starting role with, I believe it's Trois in Ligue 1. And so starting in France has been great for him. <laughs> Way to try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's been able to showcase his ability on the ball. I think he's kind of a replacement level defender. He can be messy at the back sometimes, but wants to step forward and open the defense up. So he reminds me a lot of Chris Richards when I watch EB, EPB play. But I think Richards has special abilities defensively and Richards senses danger defensively at a level that EPB doesn't. So I think he's a guy that's kind of on the fringe like we're talking about. I don't see him stepping in and providing immediate value the way a John Brooks does, certainly. But he could very easily be the fourth or the fifth center back on a roster, especially if we're dealing with injuries. And he could give us another option where we have that ability to be calm under pressure and to keep the ball and to play that possession style that Greg wants to. Awesome. Well, I know there were dozens of other players that we could have talked about, and maybe we'll have you as a recurring segment to start working our way down those depth charts in each of the positions. So before we go, just kind of give me your overall thoughts going into the March window. The U.S. is kind of in the driver's seat for themselves. They um, you know, own their own destiny going into these last three games. How are you feeling going into the games against Mexico, Panama, and Costa Rica? I am nervous, cautiously hopeful and optimistically nervous. Um, like you said, we're in the driver's seat, which should be the absolute minimum expectation for this team in this region with the talent that we have available to us. I don't think it's a problem for us to get a win at home against Panama. And there is total possibility to get a draw or even to get a win in either of our away games, but we've left it down to the wire now. You know, we've left it to a point where if things go wrong, we could be looking at another disaster. I don't expect that. I, I think it's fair to expect us to come through and to qualify. And I think that there will be a massive celebration if we do qualify, which on the one hand is warranted and on the other is a little sad because <laughs> our talent has come so far from where it was in the last cycle. On a personal note, I'm expecting a baby on March 27th. My wife is due. So it will be very interesting to see <laughs> the level of attention or sleep or focus I'm able to give to those games. <laughs> well, we wish you very much luck in, in that um, I know that's one of the, the craziest times to just be a human being and, and welcome a new one into the world. And you have to worry about the U.S. getting into the World Cup and qualifying. So we wish you luck there. Thank you so much for your time talking through these players. And guys, before you leave this video, make sure to tell us down below in the comments which player you're most looking forward to that you heard about today. All right, we'll see you next time on FIFA America. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.